We are continuing this morning in our sermon series through the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. The specific passage in Acts chapter 6 will be on the screen for you. Um, But the book of Acts is all about what Jesus is doing in our world right now. It's actually about church planting, extending and growing the church throughout the world. And what we see is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is growing his church. uh, And he's doing that in spite of and often through external opposition and internal conflict in the church. And so we're reminded that there are dark spiritual forces that are actually opposing the church and its growth. Satan uses many different tactics to oppose the church. In Acts chapter 5, what we looked at last week, we saw external persecution and opposition coming from outside the church. And as we turn to chapter 6 this morning, what we're going to see is a more subtle type of attack that Satan is using, where he's actually seeking to create division and distraction to keep the church from pursuing its mission. But through this, as we look at this, we learn how God intends to grow his church, not only then, but today in the face of similar challenges. And so what we're going to see ultimately is that the church has a need for different kinds of servers. And this is particularly appropriate today as we are observing Service Sunday. There are lots of different opportunities for all of the people in the church to be involved serving in order to extend the mission of the church. So we're going to turn to Acts chapter 6 and we're looking at verses 1 through 7 together this morning. Hear now God's word. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, as we come before your word this morning, we are reminded even from this portion of it that your word is what we most need to hear. And we are reminded that we have a great dependence upon you to enable us to hear it rightly. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would Be powerfully at work through your word, even this morning, opening our eyes to see and our ears to hear, and most importantly, our hearts to believe that Jesus is the King of kings, the one who alone is able to give us life, the one who loved his church enough to come and die for her, who has paid the price for sin so that we can be in a relationship with you 
together as a community. And then you've called us out to tell the world this good news. And so we pray that you would encourage us and motivate us this morning in our mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you ever, like me, get to the end of a day, maybe a day at work or a day at home, and you realize that you didn't get done that one thing, that one primary thing that you were intending to do that day. You didn't accomplish it because you'd gotten distracted by so many other things, maybe good things, maybe important things. You got caught up doing important, necessary administrative tasks or chores around the house, but you didn't do that one most important thing. Maybe those other things were, were important because they were connected to people that you care about, people who needed you. I realized for me that it's so easy for me to get consumed with administrative tasks or responding to people who need my assistance. And sometimes, uh, if there is a, a task that is really important for me to get done, like preparing to preach a sermon, I realize that I have to isolate myself. I have to go somewhere different, move to a different spot, often away from email, um, so that I can actually focus. Um, I have to not check my email for a period, not check my phone, turn those notifications off, because I know how easy it is for me to feel like I need to respond to everything that comes up. I remember one of my kids telling me about a particular teacher in their school that everybody knew was very easy to distract, to get off course. And so the class very intentionally, my kids told me, um, and I wondered why, why am I sending you for this education? But uh, my, the class would intentionally, at the beginning of class, ask the teacher a question um, geared towards getting them off track so they'd start talking about all these other things and telling stories. And what that led to is the students not having to engage whatever it was that they were supposed to be learning that day. Satan actually takes a very similar approach as he seeks to destroy the church and keep it from growing. We've already seen how he's tried to destroy the church by sending persecution and opposition from outside the church. But in this passage, we see how he's actually at work inside the church. Previously, we've seen how he's at work inside the church through the deceit and sin of some of its members. But here in this passage, we see that he's at work simply trying to create division and ultimately just distraction within the church community. So the first mile marker that we want to notice is that God is at work growing his church. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us that very clearly in both the first verse, verse 1, and the last verse of our passage, verse 7. We're told about the significant growth in the church, that more and more people were hearing the word of God, the gospel, or the good news about Jesus and his death and his resurrection so that people like us People who don't have it all together, sinful people, can actually be forgiven and have a relationship with him. And so more people were believing this gospel, this good news, and becoming Christians, becoming followers of Jesus, which the Bible calls disciples. That's what it means to be a, a disciple, is a follower of Jesus. And Luke tells us in verse 1, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, and this growth was a direct result of what was taking place 
in the verse right before this. If you have a Bible, you could look. Um, chapter 5, verse 42. We looked at that last week where Luke told us that in every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so the apostles were devoted to preaching about Jesus. And the church was growing as a result. And Satan and the forces of darkness hate the church and hate when it grows. And so we see, secondly, that the growth of the church is threatened by division and distraction. So the division takes the form of, of conflict in this particular case, as so often between different groups of people who have different cultural backgrounds. And those cultural differences can become a fissure that threatens to become a chasm. And we see that in this passage that can lead to distraction. So the division and the conflict takes the form of a complaint. And that's so often that the way that division within a church starts is through complaining. But here, there was actually a legitimate concern. The end of verse 1 tells us, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And that's the distribution of food. And God has always cared about the poor and the needy, about the widows and the orphans, the fatherless, throughout the entirety of the Bible, God has always cared, and he's also always wanted his people to have a similar care and concern and compassion for them. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy in chapter 14, as an example, verses 28 and 29 tell us, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns, and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And so we've seen how in the book of Acts, the good news of Jesus's death and his resurrection has been proclaimed. This gospel has gone out and people have believed it. They've trusted in Jesus as their savior. They've become Christians and Jesus has filled his followers and his church with his Holy Spirit. And so this new community that has been captivated by God's grace and filled with God's spirit is now characterized as we've seen by generosity toward one another. That people are actually sharing the things that they have to meet the needs of others. And one of the clearest ways that we see that exhibited is here, this generosity exhibited by providing food for widows who are in need. But there's a problem. Apparently, the grocery distribution system still has some kinks in it. And a particular group of widows are being neglected. Luke tells us that there are, there are two different groups that make up this Jerusalem church, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So who were these groups? Well, the Hellenists uh, were Greek-speaking Jews who had been dispersed throughout, uh, away from Palestine, throughout all kinds of different regions um, that started way back hundreds of years earlier when the Babylonians carried the Israelites out of their land into captivity. And since then, people, Jewish people, had been spread out all over the place. 
But many of these Jewish people um, were now living back in Palestine, and they had become Christians, but they spoke Greek, and they were largely influenced by Greek culture. So that's one group of people. The other group of people uh, Luke calls the Hebrews, and they were Jewish Christians who lived in Palestine, and they primarily spoke Aramaic, and they were immersed in Jewish culture. And so the differences between these groups were more than just the languages they spoke and more than just where they lived or were from. That certainly played into it. But as John Stott says, it's usually been supposed that they were distinguished from each other by a mixture of geography and language, but this is an inadequate explanation. Paul himself calls himself a Hebrew um, in spite of the fact that he came from Tarsus and spoke Greek. So the distinction must go beyond origin and language to culture. So from the beginning, the church, the early church here in Jerusalem, had a mixture of various different languages and a mixture of different cultures. And so often we know that when different cultures collide, it can result in friction and conflict. And here we see a case of one of the groups, the widows in one of the groups, the Hellenists, being neglected in the food distribution. And there's no mention that this was done deliberately or on purpose, but it was happening. It was a reality. And often when there is discrimination that's experienced or even discrimination that is perceived as being experienced, especially between people of different cultural backgrounds, it can result in suspicion that leads to distrust, and then ultimately even division. And so David Peterson wisely cautions that Christians in every age and social context need to be aware of the threat that cultural and racial differences can pose to their unity in Christ. So the very unity of the body of Christ can be threatened by division that often is based in these differences of culture. But the apostles don't downplay this. They don't say, oh, stop complaining. Um, they don't ignore the complaint. They take it very seriously. But they also recognize that there is an even deeper threat, a more significant threat beneath the surface, a deeper problem. They realize that they're devoting all of their time and energy to dealing with this cultural tension and fixing uh, the grocery distribution system could distract them from their primary calling to preach and to pray. They realize that their particular calling that Jesus has given them is to communicate in various forms the good news of Jesus. And so they bring the whole church into the discussion of how to solve this problem. If you look at verses 2 through 4, Luke tells us, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. To prayer and to ministry of the word. They are very cognizant, very aware that the thing that they most need to focus on 
is the ministry of the word and also of prayer. Because if we're not prayerful, we can't expect that that word is going to accomplish its purpose. And so we see that the church has, sorry, what in the world is that? This is terrible. Um, <laughs> see, technology is a distraction of Satan right here. Okay. Um, turning the timer off, so I have no idea how long this is going to be. No, just kidding. Um, what we see is that the church has a need for different kinds of servers. That's kind of the main theme in this passage is service. And we see that there are different kinds of service and different kinds of people who are called to those different areas of service. And so the apostles recognized that their primary calling uh, was the ministry or, or service, is actually underlying the Greek there, uh, service of preaching the word of God. That's their primary calling. And they say it would not be right for us to neglect that in order to serve tables. And they're not saying serve tables in a way that degrades it or demeans that or saying that that is a lesser calling. They just recognize that that is not their primary calling, but it is a necessary and important ministry of the church. And so what they do is they provide qualifications for the kind of leaders who are going to lead in this mercy ministry. And the qualifications relate to spiritual maturity. They say, we're looking for men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. But the apostles don't pick out those particular leaders. They tell the congregation as a whole to pick out people, pick out men who meet these qualifications. And then they, the apostles, will appoint these men to this service. And so if you look at verse 5, it says that what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And all of the seven who are selected actually have Greek names, and so it's possible that they may have all been from that group who are the Hellenists who are complaining that their widows were being neglected. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, it's not certain. But Stephen and Philip, uh, who are mentioned, uh, we're going to hear a lot more about. They're going to feature prominently in the ongoing story, especially in the coming chapters, about how God is at work expanding the gospel, extending it beyond Jerusalem. But the others we don't hear any more about. Nicolaus, we're told, is a proselyte of Antioch, and a proselyte is just a convert to Judaism. So that means that he is a, a Gentile. And so he's kind of a foretaste of the fact that the gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles and there will be many more Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus through the gospel and become a part of the church. And so we see the church is beginning to expand beyond the borders that it has previously had. And the apostles prayed and they laid their hands on them in order to commission this group of leaders to a particular ministry of service. And so this episode is commonly thought of as sort of the origin of the diaconal ministry in the church. Um, and these seven servers, while not specifically called deacons, that noun isn't present, uh, but the verb, uh, the cognate verb, 
diacana, uh, sorry, diakoneo, um, which is a common verb that simply means to serve. Well, that is used in this passage and it's also used later in the New Testament to describe actual deacons. So whether these are actually the first deacons, um, it's certainly the beginning of diaconal ministry. They could be called proto-deacons. Um, and there's definitely diaconal mercy ministry going on. One scholar, Dennis Johnson, says, Stephen and his colleagues are not called deacons, and their courted ministries of Stephen and Philip extended beyond serving tables. So they do a lot of things uh, that New Testament deacons aren't specifically charged with doing. Nevertheless, the general distinction drawn here between word ministry and table ministry, also called mercy ministry, would be worked out later in the distinction between the offices of elder, overseer, and deacon. And so what we clearly see here is that the church of Jesus is to be engaged in both the ministry of the word and mercy ministry. Those are both needs that exist in the church that are priorities of the church, and God appoints leaders to lead in both of those areas. So he's called some people to be primarily engaged in the ministry of the word, but he's also called others in his church to be involved helping meet the material needs of other people. He's gifted many Christians to be involved in ministries of mercy. And he's structured the church in order to place leaders called deacons uh, to lead the church and empower the church in that kind of ministry, to meet practical needs, physical needs, financial needs. And so just as a very clear application of this, if you are here and you are here, um, if you have physical or material or financial needs, we as a church want to meet you in that and help you in that. We believe that that is a vital ministry of the church. And we ask that you please don't suffer in silence. We have deacons who administer what is called our benevolence fund. We took up an offering for it just last week, and we do the first Sunday of every month. And that fund exists for the purpose of helping meet material, physical, financial needs, needs for things like counseling and other types of needs. And so we have deacons who are gifted and called by God and appointed by this church in order to engage with you, to help you get those needs met. So please, please talk to those deacons. We'd love to help you connect with them if you have needs. Another thing that we see very clearly is that leaders delegate. Leaders delegate. And so the pastors, the ministers, the elders, church leaders don't do everything. They can't do everything. And when they feel like they should or like they have to or expected to, which very often is the case, either through pressures that they place on themselves or uh, perceived pressures from outside, when leaders feel like they have to do everything, it so easily leads to burnout. And when those who are specifically called to the ministry of the word are distracted and feel like they need to be doing and involved in everything, in all the good ministries that the church does, then what it leads to is distraction from their primary calling, when they're focusing on so many other often good things, and the church and the proclamation of the gospel suffer. And so in order 
for the ministers, the elders, those who are particularly called to the ministry of the word, to be able to focus on that. It's imperative uh, that everyone in the church realize that if you are a Christian, you are called to ministry. You are called to service. In various different areas, depending on God's particular gifting of you and his particular calling, the reality is that because Jesus is at work growing his church, despite the opposition from outside and inside, he's growing his church by the power of the Holy Spirit and through his word, members of the church, people like you, like me, need to embrace and engage in the specific types of ministry that we've been gifted for and called to. So how is God calling you to be involved in the life and ministry of the church? And as we've already begun to hear, and there are opportunities to hear more, there are lots of opportunities for you, whoever you are, to be involved in ministry in various types of service today. So please prayerfully consider how God might be leading you, maybe in ways that you haven't even considered, to engage in the ministry of the church. The church grows as every member uses her or his gifts according to their calling. And we see the result in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so the church grows as more and more people hear about Jesus and trust in him. And this clearly happens because the ministry of the word, the preaching of the gospel, is enabled to continue going on unhindered without distraction. If the apostles had felt like they had to do all of the word ministry and all of the mercy ministry and everything else, all the other administrative tasks, then the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church would certainly have been slowed. But they're not called to do everything. None of us are called to do everything. That's why God puts us together in a body where there are many different members who have different gifts and different functions God calls others to engage in mercy ministry, and that might be some of you. And that ministry, that ministry of mercy, actually demonstrates the truth and the power of the gospel that is being preached and taught. You see, when people, the watching world, look and they see the effect that this good news has in a community when the gospel is believed— when they see a community that's characterized by sacrificial love and care for those in need, for the outsider, then that gospel actually appears both beautiful and believable when people see the transformative effect that it has. And the Holy Spirit continues to work powerfully through his word, through the good news of the gospel to draw more and more people to faith in Jesus Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why do you think Luke mentions the fact that there were a lot of priests who embraced the faith, who believed in Jesus? Because it's a very clear demonstration of the power of the gospel to transform anyone even the most unlikely, even the most antagonistic. 
It's a clear demonstration of the power of the gospel to go out, to reach all kinds of people in all kinds of places. It's a reminder to us as a church of the scope of our ministry, that the gospel is to go out as far as our reach. So our communication of the gospel is to go to everyone, including those who seem most unlikely, most far off, most hostile to Christianity. Justin Holcomb says, the priests mentioned in verse 7 are significant. It was this very group up to this point that was the most vehemently opposed to the gospel. This reminds us of the scope of the gospel. It is to be preached to everyone, even those who hate Christians and desire their deaths. Priests and Pharisees were a major group of antagonists during the life and ministry of Jesus. They instigated and influenced his death. And Jesus reserved his strongest words for religious leaders. Their faith in Christ and Acts is a reflection of the power of the gospel and the grace of God to those who opposed Jesus. And if we're willing to look inside, we recognize and we remember that even if we are presently Christians, believing in Jesus, following him, it's only because when we were still sinners, Christ died for us to welcome us. So who is it in your life, in your spheres of influence, that seems maybe most unlikely to believe the gospel? Will you pray for that person or those people? And will you pray that the Holy Spirit will be at work, maybe through your own words and the words of other Christians, that he would give you opportunity to speak of the hope that you have of the good news of the gospel with them? And then, if you are a follower of Jesus already, if you have trusted in him and you've become his follower, then recognize that God has given you gifts that he intends to use in his church and through his church in order to extend his mission. That's what Jesus is presently at work doing. He's extending his kingdom throughout this world through his church. And he intends to use the members of the church to do that. So how is God calling you to serve? 87% of you are called to start a new church in Golden. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but probably a good percentage. We'll pray for that. Some of you are called to use your gifts to meet the material needs of other people, both here inside this church and beyond. And there's presently plenty of opportunities to do that and opportunities to learn about those opportunities even this morning. Some of you have the opportunity to be used by God to help other people hear the good news of the gospel. Even some of our littlest ones who were just up on this stage to tell them about Jesus, to read them, read to them from the Bible about Jesus, to teach them songs that point their little hearts to Jesus so that seeds of faith can grow and take root. Satan is still at work right now seeking to destroy the church. We can't forget that. He hates the idea of the church growing. He hates the idea of the church multiplying. And he still wants to use division and distraction to thwart the church. But Jesus is committed to growing his church. And he promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And he's at work through the power of his Holy Spirit using his word right now as members of the church embrace their various gifts and callings. There's so many opportunities for you to be involved in that ministry, in that mission. So please pray about that and don't leave here without prayerfully considering how God might be calling you to engage with your gifts in Jesus's mission in this world. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are so committed to your mission, so committed to your bride, the church, and so committed to using her to gather people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation to be a part of a beautiful, enduring community that will last forever. We thank you for your grace that welcomes sinners like us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us to reach out in order to welcome other people in. We pray that you would be pleased to use us and our various gifts together to extend your kingdom here in this part of the world where you've called us to live and to serve for the glory of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.